We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. I hope you enjoy this interview with Barbara Sorrells. I want to let you know about the trauma-informed course that I created it ties in very good with this conversation that I have with Barbara. You can learn more about it by going to jethrojones.com slash trauma, and it will help you implement strategies and tools to help you be effective in dealing with trauma in your school right away. So go to jethrojones.com slash trauma to check that out. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Barbara Sorrells on the podcast today. Barbara, welcome and thank you for joining me on Transformative Principle. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we today are going to talk about trauma-responsive classrooms. And can you give us a little bit of your background and, and who you are and what got you to where you're able to talk about this? Uh, sure. Actually, my story begins a long time ago, really as a teenager. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I started rocking abandoned babies at D.C. General Hospital. I grew up in Washington, D.C. And on Sunday afternoons, I rocked babies who were found on doorsteps, abandoned in parks. The D.C. jail was across the street. And babies who were born in jail were brought to this place. And it was the quietest place on earth. You never heard a baby laugh and you never heard a baby cry. Oh, and I wondered at that point, you know, how could these babies be so different? And um, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty was in his heyday in the 60s. You know, I was a teenager in the 60s in D.C., and so I did a lot of inner city work in high school and in, in college and just, you know, saw firsthand the results of violent neighborhoods and poverty 
And I saw how it impacted children. And then my very first year of teaching was in the inner city. And I realized I had no tools to um, help these children. So it just kind of launched me on a journey. And um, over the years, um, as a professor at Oklahoma State University, I had an opportunity to go to conferences and learn from people. And in 1998, I went to a conference where I heard Dr. Bruce Perry speak and was fascinated by all that he had to say. Uh, if If you're not familiar with his work, he's probably the international guru on children and trauma and brain development. Um, He deals with situations like the Waco disaster, Sandy Hook, anytime there's a disaster that involves children. um, He's often involved in some way and was fascinated by what he shared that day. And so since that time, I've had the opportunity to do some training and study with him, have been certified in his neurosequential process of therapeutics. And another person that highly influenced me was Dr. Karen Purvis from Texas Christian University, who pioneered trust-based relational intervention and went down to Fort Worth several times, quite a few times to learn from her and all that he she had to share. So these are the primary people that have had an impact on me and have helped me to look at children differently and um, informs what I do and how I approach children who have trauma. What a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you also have a large spiritual approach to how you uh, talk about nurturing healthy attachments and nurturing the heart of children. Can you talk a little bit about how that spirituality plays a role in, in helping children? Yes, I do believe that it's a very critical role. I mean, actually, in all of the studies, uh, one of the things that we know is that faith and being part of a faith community is a resilience factor. And so it's always been a very important part of my life. Um, I believe that child development just really basically points us to God. And I believe that God's design for us is to live in connection with Him within our own self, um, with our family, our community, and the world at large. I believe connection is what it's all about. I believe that that's um, what faith allows us to do is to live a life that's connected. Yeah, I, I like that comment. Faith allows us to live a life that is connected. Now, in schools, we there needs to be a separation of church and state, and it's not um, always appropriate to talk about faith. How do you support teachers and educators who can't be you know, preaching to captive audiences about this kind of stuff. How do you coach them to to deal with it and handle it in a way that is appropriate? Well, I just believe that those of us who are, you know, are believers in the Christian faith, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. And in, in all of our interactions with children, you know, my prayer whenever I go into a situation is is really that whoever I'm dealing with would just see Jesus in me. And I believe that that happens on a very spiritual, unseen level. And and so I believe that everything that we do, the way we live our lives is in a sense worship and approaching the work that way. I see it as a ministry and not a job. I see it as something that I was called to do and fulfilling my God-given purpose. And I believe when we live out our purpose, God shows up in unseen ways. 
where we may not be overtly talking about it, but other people know it. I've, I've actually had people come up to me in trainings or just interacting with people and they'll stop and say, you're a believer, aren't you? I can just tell. So I, I think that it's just a part of who we are and everything that we do. Yeah. And I, I believe a lot of what you believe as well. And I believe that, you know, people are allowed and should certainly be enabled to, you know, worship and practice faith in whatever God, however they want. That's really important to me. So how do you uh, teach these concepts when you, when you're dealing with someone who doesn't have faith and you know that that having some sort of faith would really help them with whatever they're struggling with? Well, of course, I I deal a lot with very young children and children just have this very inherent understanding of God and they often instigate and initiate conversations about God. But of course, when I'm dealing with, with older people, I mean, I just ask them if they, you know, just kind of questions about, you know, have they thought about, you know, meaning in life, the purpose of life and you know, you just kind of ask some of those questions that usually opens the door for some kind of conversation. And I just encourage them to, you know, seek out people that they respect, that they know that that live out some kind of faith that are part of different faith communities and just go talk to them. Yeah. I One of the questions that I often ask families who are in crisis is if they have a faith community that they can turn to as they're going through it, because, you know, there's only so much that I can do as their principal or a teacher can do. But, you know, if they have a faith community and even if they're not active in it or they haven't been forever, you know, people who, who have faith do have hearts that typically allow them to reach out and support those who, who are struggling. That Yeah, that's so true. And, and also one of the things that uh, happens in Tulsa is and we have several churches who have, in a sense, adopted a school. And so some of those families, you know, you can then call in churches to minister those families, not necessarily overtly, but in bringing that meal and meeting that physical need, then those relationships are formed and those conversations happen that I think is so important. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that connection piece, whether it's through a faith community or through something else, is, as you mentioned, an, an important thing that that we all are striving for, whether we are aware of it or not. When there is connection, it, it resolves many problems. When there's a healthy, appropriate connection, right? <laughs> right. You're, yes, you're so right. Yeah. yeah. I, I just believe so, that's Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about how we deal with trauma and how to have a trauma-responsive school and classroom. You know, if people are listening to this, they probably know about the um, webinar that I do about how to be trauma-informed and to be able to start like today. What would be your advice for someone who is in a situation where they are recognizing that they have trauma in their school and what they what should they do? How should they start? Well, I think it's, first of all, recognizing that when you have that child standing in front of you that, you know, to be honest, sometimes can get on your last nerve or, you know, is really causing some upheaval in school is, first of all, recognizing that the question is not what's wrong with you, child, but what has happened to you and taking the time to get to know that child's story um, because we know that trauma literally changes children from the inside out. It impacts us at the very cellular level. 
It impacts our brain. It affects all developmental systems, the attachment system, self-regulation, sensory processing, social skills, and learning. All systems go down. And so I have to understand and know some things about how trauma changes the brain. Um, There are many implications for that. And just understanding that we are bumping up against that child's history. And and it changes our view of that child, hopefully, when we understand these principles that I no longer look at you with irritation and frustration, but I look with you, look at you with some compassion for your story and for what's happened to you. And it all begins with relationships, building that trust, um, because these kids' history has told them that the world is not a safe place. And I think one of the things that um, we have to remember is we often use the term that children act out. Uh, Children act out in behavior what they do not have the words to say. And when you see those behavioral challenges, um, knowing that that is a form of communication and that child is trying to tell us something and doesn't know how to say it, doesn't have the words to say it. So we have to look through that lens and know some things about child development and how that development is all altered because then that gives us a very different lens through which to interpret the behavior. Yeah. So I want to talk about how it impacts them a little bit, but first I want to ask the question of how important is it for teachers and principals and those who work with kids who have experienced trauma to know what has happened to them? Because that's a sticky part for me where I'll just let you answer the question. How much do people who work with kids need to know what has actually happened to kids? Well, I mean, obviously, the more we know about a child's story, the better able we are to understand it. But the reality is that doesn't always happen in schools. We, we do know that the timing, the duration, the intensity, and the nature of the trauma Um, determines the impact, but really the behavior speaks for itself. And there's some common denominators among all forms of trauma, no matter what. When you see a child with challenging behavior, you are looking at a child who has had some form of trauma in their history. You can make that assumption. Now, the caveat being that I think we have to think more broadly about trauma because often we think in terms of the very obvious things like abuse and neglect and sexual abuse, but things like being born prematurely, early medical trauma. Those are also traumatic experiences that can manifest in the same kinds of ways. So you don't have to know everything, every detail, because that's often very impossible But the behavior itself tells the story. I mean, that child is a child who is trying to find the words to communicate, building trust, replacing the dysfunctional behavior with behaviors that um, are socially acceptable and actually meet the child's needs. You can always begin there whether you know the story or not. I think that's really important to consider that the behavior speaks for itself. So let's talk a little bit about the brain and what happens inside of a child's body when they do experience trauma. Can you talk about that? Sure. We know that the about 99% of the organization of the brainstem happens in utero in the first two months of life. Notice I'm saying organization and not connectivity. 
And so those children who experience fetal alcohol exposure, um, prenatal drug exposure, toxic stress in utero, it impacts their brain development before they're even born, um, impacts the organization of the brain. And then, of course, in those first two months, the, the brain stem is still organizing. And that's why being born prematurely, early medical trauma, even going home to a domestic violence situation, that early trauma has profound impact. And actually, that's the most vulnerable time period for the brain. And that disorganization results in disorganized projections of certain neurotransmitters that have play a huge role in our behavior and functioning. And that would be dopamine, um, norepinephrine, and serotonin. Serotonin relates to mood. Dopamine relates to motivation and pleasure. And epinephrine relates to that fight or flight response. And Dr. Perry talks about these three neurotransmitters and their importance because every behavior that we engage in involves these neurotransmitters or is only two synapses away. And if you are looking at a child who's on a drug for ADD, ADHD, you're looking at a child who's taking a medication that um, manipulates one of at least one of these neurotransmitters. And so when you have disorganized projections and dysfunctional projections of these basic neurotransmitters, you're going to see disorganized behavior. Um, Another thing that we know is that the number of dendrites on the end of a child's neurons is very much related to the quality and the health of the interuterine environment and that child's early interactions and experiences in the first couple of years of life. Um, We know that children who have fetal alcohol exposure, the two hemispheres of their brain, does not integrate well, um, which results in um, challenges with cause and effect thinking. Trauma also can uh, disrupt the integration of the two hemispheres. And then another significant implication is when children live with chronic stress, in their earliest years, it impacts the hippocampus, which is where information processing happens as well as memory. And so children's memory can be compromised as a result of long-term trauma. So, you know, you might tell Johnny to get his jacket and his lunchbox and his backpack and go stand by the door to go home. And you look over and Johnny has his jacket over his shoulder, but he's piddling around with the Legos. And you think Johnny's not listening, but it could be that Johnny can't remember his his short-term memory is compromised. You know, there are many other systems that are compromised in the brain. Language goes offline when there's trauma, the capacity to use symbols. And so you can see that all of these things are so foundational to learning throughout life and that that compromise early start has long-term implications. Yeah, that is very fascinating. And I'm sure we could go, you know, a whole hour discussion on each one of those different things that, that it affects and, and talk much more about that. But I really want to get down to the practical piece of what is it that teachers can do when students are exhibiting these behaviors and, and how do we, how do we help them to be successful in a stressful school environment? 
Well, that's a great question. I I, want to kind of back out a little bit bigger than that, because I think there are three layers at which we have to attack this problem. And, And the first is we have to create the environment. And Rita DeVries wrote a fabulous book years ago called Moral Classrooms, Moral Children. And she talked about three kinds of classrooms. There's the factory, the boot camp, and the community. And children who have trauma will only thrive in a community, that place that feels like family. Um, They don't do well in boot camps. Also, one of the things that we know is that we have to use developmentally appropriate practice with children who have trauma. I believe with well-nurtured children, we have a wide margin of error. Um, With trauma kids, we have a very narrow window of strategies. And because we know that children who have significant trauma function at half of their chronological age, uh, psychologically, and then with Dr. Perry's work, he has found that with every year, every grade level, a child who has trauma will lose half of a grade level. And so recognizing you may be teaching fifth grade, but that child is probably functioning as a, probably a second grader. And developmentally appropriate practices is critical because we build cortex through active alert engagement with the world. Um, Sitting with endless hours uh, in front of a computer or memorizing lots facts or doing lots and lots of worksheets is is never going to be successful with children who have trauma. They need active alert engagement with the world with developmentally appropriate minds-on, hands-on experiential learning. And so that really needs to be in place. It needs to be a safe classroom with, with teachers who are very relational. But you say, okay, in that moment, you have that child that that's struggling. I mean, there's a number of strategies that we use. And of course, you know, it's not every strategy works with every child, but one of our primary strategies is a do-over. Years ago, back when we were in the, I was in the classroom, we called it a reboot. You know, when computers first came out, we'd say, let's, let's do a reboot and try it again. I, now I'm calling it a do-over. And that was part of Karen Purvis's work as well. But instead of timeout, we say, you know, but that's not okay. That, that Let's try that again. But I also have to make sure that that child really knows what the appropriate way to ask for something is or the appropriate way to behave. I may have to model that first or give that ch- the child the words to do that. And so using do-overs instead of timeout. And I've had teachers say that that one thing profoundly changed the dynamic of their classroom. And, and I always ask teachers, who's sitting in timeout in kindergarten? Who's still there in fifth grade? It's always the same kids. Nothing happens. Um, and our goal is, yeah, our goal is not just to manage their behavior, but to, to heal them from the inside out. And timeout is a behavior management strategy, not a strategy for long-term change. The other strategy that I use a lot is you ignore the no and give two yeses. So, for example, um, in uh, the last couple of years, we've had a therapeutic preschool where we had children who um, many of them had been asked to leave other programs. So, for example, you have a child that's balking and not wanting to come in on the playground. They're saying, no, I'm, I'm not coming in. And you just say, well, would you like to hop like a bunny or jump like a frog? And they're like, oh, you know, we're sharing some power. 
and giving them two choices. So I say ignore the no and give two choices is, is probably my second most um, go-to strategy in those moments. We were recently uh, did some training in a school and there was this fabulous lady in her 70s still teaching kindergarten. And she later communicated with us that after the training, she went back to her classroom and she got a beanbag chair and a lamp and set up this little cozy corner in her room. And she also told other teachers around her to send their kiddos to her that were struggling. Oh, and she also bought some washcloths. So now what happens um, is when you're ha- a, a child is struggling in another room, they come down to her room. She gives them a washcloth and a- invites them to go to the cozy corner and curl up in the beanbag chair with a book or a sensory bottle. And she says, you let me know when you're ready to go back to class. And I think, okay, so why does that work? I think understanding the principles can help us to come up with other strategies. So first of all, that child is going to a different venue. Sometimes just simply inviting that child to say, let's just go walk down the hall. Simply walking down the hall and getting out of that physical environment kind of gives a child a chance to reboot. But then also, as we know that patterned, repetitive, rhythmic, touch, sound, and movement brings organization to the brainstem and is also calming to the central nervous system. So as walking is pattern repetitive movement. So the very act of walking can have a calming effect. I go into the classroom, this teacher hands this child a wet washcloth that in a sense is a tangible symbol of empathy. It's like, I get you. I get that you're stressed out. It's, it's a tangible symbol that I'm here to help. And so then the child goes to that cozy, quiet space, but then he's also given some power in that it's not, you're going to sit here until I tell you to get up, but you let me know when you're ready. And she said that um, they're having um, some success, success with that and, and teachers, other teachers are buying into it. So those are a, a couple of very practical things that you can do. Yeah, those are both great. The last question that I ask is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Uh, I, I think when you see those children who are struggling to remind yourself that it's not what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you and, and really seek to build that relationship and that connection with that child. Uh, you know, it might just be a pat on the back, just greeting that child by name, where you communicate to that child that I notice you, I know who you are, because as principals, you know, where sometimes kids look at principals as these people on high who never talk to us or have a relationship with us, but making a point to just communicate to that child that I notice you and um, develop that relationship. Yeah, that's that's definitely powerful. Barbara, uh, you've got a podcast out that is called uh, the Nurturing the Heart of a Child, correct? How do people learn more about you and connect with you? Well, the podcast is on iTunes and also I have a website uh, that's a parenting website, drbarbrasorrels.com. And I do the podcast with my daughter 
And um, so you can access it either through the website or going directly to iTunes, Nurturing the Heart of a Child. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Barbara. Again, this has uh, been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time uh, chatting with me. And thank you so much for all you do for kids all around the country. You're welcome. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.